You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we begin, we will ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious God, we come to your word, and it is our desire that you would sanctify your people in the truth, by your truth. Your word is truth. It's not just true, but it is truth in its purest and best sense. We're so grateful that you've given to us a clear revelation of yourself. So sanctify us by it, we pray, that you would confirm your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you, and that you would, by your word, fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for Christ, who is our Savior, and in whose name we pray. Amen. In John chapter 17, our relationship to the world as Christians is a very odd and unique thing. We live in this world, and we are born into this world, and we're part of this world, and all we know is this world, and we've never experienced anything other than what is in this world. We live here, we do business here, our family is here, we do commerce here, we we work here, we spend our money here, we save up for retirement here, we retire here, and then we die here. And everything we do is really about this, at least in the physical realm. And yet, as God's people, we are saved out of this world, and Scripture says that we are delivered from this world and transferred into the kingdom of light and into the kingdom of Christ. And our citizenship is in heaven, and our names are written in heaven, and our Savior is in heaven, and our family is in heaven, and really everything that we cherish and that means anything to us is in heaven. And so we, we're kind of people with, with feet in, in both worlds, as it were. And uh, sometimes our relationship to this world can be a bit odd. And the Lord has left us here to, to serve Him here. He could have taken us out of this world the minute we got saved. Have you ever thought about that or not? But the minute you trusted Christ, He could have uh, translated your body and made you into a, a glorious creature, like 1 Corinthians 15 style, where the trumpet will sound and you, this mortal will be swallowed up in immortality and this flesh will be changed into an immortal flesh. The Lord could have done that had He chosen to do so. He could have just taken you right to heaven instantly like like He did with Elijah on a chariot of fire, as it were. Or He could just kill you. And that's another way that God takes us to heaven, right? He just kills us. If God were to kill us the minute we got saved, He would do us no no ill. He would do us no wrong. And He could take us to heaven that way. It is not because of any lack of God's power that He keeps us here. He could take us to glory if He wanted to. But the fact that the Lord has left us here is indicative of the fact that He has a mission for us, a purpose for us in leaving us here. And that brings us to John chapter 17, which we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. We're looking at this section in John 13, or John 17, verses 13 through 17, where the Lord uses, or 13 through 19, I'm sorry, 13 through 19, where the Lord uses the term world nine different times. And this is what He is praying uh, concerning His disciples. And if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, as we've been going through John 17, this is a prayer of Jesus to the Father on the night before He was crucified. The Judas, uh, Judas the traitor has left Him, so He is praying now uh, with and for just the 11 disciples who were true believers, who belonged to Him and who were saved. And He is praying for them concerning their ministry and their mission in the world, and He has asked the Father to keep them and to preserve them. And we've looked at a couple of different divisions in this prayer, verses 1 through 5. Jesus prayed for himself, and really in praying for himself, he was by extension praying for his people whom the Father had given to him. And then beginning in verses 6 and going through verse 20, the Lord prays for the 11 disciples. 
specifically uh, specifically for those 11 disciples who were with him. And then beginning in verse 20 and through the end of the chapter, he prays for a larger group, those who have believed or will believe upon him through the testimony of the disciples. So for himself, for the 11, and then for all of us. And as we've worked our way through this entire prayer, we have taken note of the things that pertain to us as God's people, even noting that though he is praying specifically things for the 11 disciples, there are things that he says that are true about them and things that he prays for them that by extension also apply to us. And we've taken note of some of those things. In verses 13 through 19, Jesus is praying with the 11 for the 11, but he is praying concerning their time and their testimony while they remain in this world. So just a quick review of verses 13 through 19. Verses 13 and 14, we find out what the Lord has provided or supplied for his people whom he has left in the world. He has supplied us with his word and he has supplied us with his joy. In verses 15 and 16, we saw that he has secured or kept those who are his. He prays for the Father, not that the Father would take us out of the world, but leave us in the world and that the Father would keep or preserve those whom he has left in the world. And then verse 17, we looked at last week, he has sanctified us. And he prays that the Father would sanctify those whom he has left in the world. And now today we turn to verses 18 and 19, which have to do with us being sent into the world. So we are supplied with his word and with his world, uh, with his joy. We are uh, secured while we're in this world. We are sanctified and now we are sent. Verses 18 and 19, we are sent. And so we're looking at this commission of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. We are the sent ones. So beginning at verse 18 and verse 19, we'll read them together. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now you'll notice there's a repetition of the idea of being sanctified here, or at least it's repeated, repeats what is sort of expressed in verse 17. So this idea of being sent and this idea of being sanctified, they are connected. Last week we talked about sanctification and what that is, and this week we're going to be talking about being sent. And we're going to see that there is a connection between being sanctified and being sent. But primarily today we're focusing on this idea of being sent. And I want you to notice how Jesus is very intentional about his commission. He's very intentional about it. It is not as if he was praying and saying, Well, Father, since I'm leaving them in the world, I just don't know what I'm going to have them do while they're here. Let me think about it for a moment. Well, oh, I know. I could make them my messengers. That's not the Lord's attitude at all. In a very intentional and specific way, he has something in mind for leaving his disciples here. When he prays in verse 15, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them in the world and keep them from the evil one. The end of this, the aim of that prayer, of us being kept here, is that we are sent. We are his messengers. We are his, we are his mouthpiece. We are his representatives. We are here with something to do, namely to reach this world with a gospel that we have embraced and believed. And that's the idea of verses 18 and 19. Jesus is very intentional about this. He has something very specific in mind for you to do while you are here. He has sent you into the world to be his representative there, wherever it is that he has placed you. It's very deliberate, his, his, his desire. It's very deliberate and very specific. It's, it's not just something we do while we're here. It's the very reason that we have been left here, or one of them. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in verse 15, I suggested that if the Lord has left us here, then really we can take all of the reasons why he has left us here and divide them up into three categories. For the good of the world, for our own good, and for his glory. Those are the three general categories of the reasons why he's left us here. He's left us here for our own good because in this process of being here, he sanctifies us, he prepares us for eternity. He's going through that process of making us more and more holy. It's also for the glory of God because as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, 
put on display before the angels, before the demons, before the watching world, before all of the saints in glory. And here is this magnificent transformation of a sinner into a saint through the sanctifying process as God makes and keeps His people holy while they are here that honors and glorifies God. And it is also good for the world in that the world receives the blessings and the benefits of having Christians among them. And this is quite ironic since if you were to ask most people in our nation, um, do you like having Christians in this country? Who would you rather run out, Muslims or Christians? Probably 90% of people who are not Christians would say run the Christians out. We're happy to have the Muslims here as long as they're, we don't have the Christians here. And yet Christians are of such rich benefit and blessing to the world in which we live. We do good for the world. We testify of the gospel of God's grace. There is a restraint upon sin. There is common grace that is given to unbelievers as a result of believers being here. The church is of such good to every society that it is in, and intentionally so, by the grace of God, by His intention. The church is good for every society in which it is in. And yet the world doesn't like that, does it? The world hates us. And we have to expect that that hatred will grow more and more intense over time. And it certainly is, and it will. But that's just what we, that's what the Lord told us we should expect. So he has left us here to be his representatives, and we are the ones who have been sent into the world. Now, verse 18, as I have been sent, so I have sent them. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is sort of John's way of giving the Great Commission. You'll notice you get to the end of the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Great Commission passages, passages where the Lord sends his disciples out into the world, kind of gives them a commission, describes what's that about. Uh, John doesn't have a Great Commission passage. You're probably most familiar with the one at the, the end of the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's probably most familiar to us because of the sort of the Trinitarian language there. Um, and, and that's the one that we're most familiar with. But Luke also has a, a Great Commission passage. The book of Acts begins with a Great Commission passage. Mark has a Great Commission passage. John doesn't put one of those Great Commission passages at the end of the Gospel. John is kind of a little bit different. John weaves this idea of being sent all the way through the entire book. As we've read through the, the Gospel, we have seen on so many occasions, the Lord has described Him being sent by the Father. He just refers to the Father as the one who sent Him. He refers to himself as being the sent one. He refers to all of the reasons why he was sent from the Father to do the work that he came to do. And so this idea that the Son has been commissioned directly by the Father and that the Son is submitted to this very honorable work of being sent into the world by the Father, that's all the way through John's Gospel. And then we get references like this, as I have been sent into the world, so I'm sending you. Or said the Father, as as you have sent me into the world, so I am sending them. We see it again after the resurrection in John chapter 20. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So all the way through the Gospel is this idea that the Son was sent into the world to do a work. And then all the way through the Gospel of John also, we have these little references of Him sending the disciples to continue that work and to continue the commission that the Son has been given by the Father to do. And this has implications for the church and for the church ministry. And I just want to point this out. The idea that the the church is intended to go out into the world, this is the polar opposite of modern church philosophy and ministry. Where most churches are organized around the idea that the, the goal is to get the world to come into the church. That is the polar opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He sends his church out into the world. He doesn't say to the church, gather together and invite the world to come in. That's not what we are to do. 
We are not to intentionally design the preaching of the, of the church, the worship service of the church, the music of the church, all of the activities of the church, the feel of the church, in order to appeal to unbelievers. We are instead, as the gathering of the saints, to be the gathering of the saints. Not the gathering of the saints mixed with as many goats as we can cram into the four walls of the building. That's not the desire. We are to gather together here so that we might be equipped and educated and built up so that we might go out and take the gospel into the four corners of the world. That's what the church is to be. Not to design everything to invite the world in. The world has infiltrated the church and instead the church is supposed to be infiltrating the world. That is how God has designed it. So you as saints, you come here to gather here, you worship here, you hear the Word of God preached, you hear the Word of God taught in Sunday school and the various uh, various uh, ministries of our church. And the goal is that as saints we would be built up to do the work of ministry, which is to go out into the places in which the Lord has stationed us and sp- and sent us and scattered us and to bring the gospel out there and to stand for the truth out there and to be a witness and a testimony and to go out into the world. That's the whole purpose that God has left you here. And there's a there's an obvious parallel here. Jesus is the example. He says in John chapter 10, the Father has sanctified him and sent him into the world. And here in this context, Jesus says that our people, we, that his people, we are sanctified and sent out into the world. So there's a parallel between what the Father has done for the Son and to the Son in sanctifying or setting him apart and sending him out into the world. There's a parallel between that and the Son then sanctifying, setting apart, and sending out his people into the world. You see the parallel that exists there? So Jesus is our example in this respect. So as you look at the ministry of Jesus and we ask ourselves, what did Jesus, what was he sent into the world to do? We see in verse 6 that he was sent into the world to manifest the name of the Father and the glory of the Father, to reveal who the Father was. He was sent into the world as a, as to witness and to testify and to preach the truth as a preacher of righteousness. He was sent into the world to call sinners to repentance. He was sent into the world to redeem a people for himself. And there are parallels there to what we have been sent into the world to do. Like our Lord Jesus Christ, we are sent into the world to manifest the name and the nature of God wherever it is that he has stationed you. That's why you exist here. That's why you've been kept here. That is what you are to do, to manifest the nature and the character of God right where God has placed you. And we are to call people to repentance just as Jesus called men and women to repentance. We are to testify to the gospel of the grace of God just as Christ testified of who the Father was and why the Father had sent him and of the truth. And we are to call men and women out and ask them to turn their backs on a world of darkness and turn to the light. That is what we have been sent to do, to to proclaim that message just as God sent the Son to proclaim that message. So there's parallels between what the Lord was sent to do and what the Lord now has, by His design and purpose and intention, sent us out into the world to do. And we continue that commission. We continue that commission. We do His work, His way, in His strength, which He provides, And we, like him, are sent into the world to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what does this look like for you and for me? Sometimes as Christians we buy into what I think is a, well, I know, it's not that I think, it's not my opinion, what I know to be a false distinction between laity and clergy. You heard this distinction? It's kind of a hangover from Roman Catholicism where the clergy, they were the ones who were the called ones. They were the special ones. They knew Latin so they could read the Bible to you in Latin. And, and they were the special ones who had this special calling. And they were the real spiritual ones who separated themselves from God. And then there was just the rest of you peons. The rest of you peasants who, who didn't, who were too stupid to read the Bible for yourself. That was the mentality prior to the Reformation. And the reformers, men like Whitkiff and Tyndale, they returned the Bible to the people in their own language so the people could read it 
And they said, let's stop having services in languages that nobody speaks and nobody reads, but in the language of the people so they can hear the Word of God preached. And they reformed the entire church. And by the way, this is Reformation Month. So it's appropriate that I should mention this. October 31st is the anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, officially launching the Protestant Reformation. So we celebrate that this month. So that false distinction between the laity and the clergy, that there is, that, that there is those who have been called to full-time ministry. They've received the calling. And then there's just the rest of us who haven't received any special calling. Do you hear this language used? I hate that language. I hate the language. I hate the language of I've been called to this ministry. Because it seems to suggest that if you haven't received some full-time call to go into full-time ministry, that you're not really serving the Lord. What does it look like to be sent out into the world? Do you have to receive a special calling for this? You know what you, Are you a doctor? You know what your calling is? To be a Christian doctor. And to be a doctor for the glory of God. And to serve your fellow man with the skills and abilities and the gifts that God has given to you. That's your calling. Do you need a still small voice to do that? No, you don't. Are you a janitor? What's your calling? Your calling is that you be the best Christian janitor right where God has placed you. And you do all that you do for the glory of God as unto the Lord, not as man-pleasers. And in doing that, you fulfill your calling. It's said of Martin Luther that somebody in, in, uh, Wittenberg, wherever Luther was at at the time that this happened, I forget, but that somebody became saved, got saved under his ministry. And this person went to Martin Luther. He was a shoemaker. And he said, now that I become a Christian, what should I do? And you know what Martin Luther said to him? Make shoes to the glory of God. That's the Protestant doctrine of vocation. That's what a calling is. It's a vocation. So God needs and uses Christian lawyers and doctors, not many Christian lawyers, but there are some <laughs> Christian lawyers and doctors and, and janitors and ditch diggers and garbage collectors and salad dressing makers and factory workers and assemblymen and lawnmowers and landscapers. These are the every calling on the face of the planet. God's intention is that you do what you do for the glory of God as unto the Lord, not as unto men, not to be a man pleaser, but do all that you do for the glory of God. And in that way, you are a full time Christian servant. And the idea that you're not really serving the Lord unless you're going overseas to to take the gospel to some unreached people group who doesn't don't even speak your language, that that's what you have to do in order to really serve the Lord and fulfill a calling? That is nonsense. You can be a housewife. And you, you, you serve your husband, you cook, you clean, you keep house, you raise your kids to love the Lord and to serve Him and to walk with Him, and you homeschool your kids and, and you, you serve in your church and... You contribute here and you do that. You sacrifice and you serve Him and you share Christ with your neighbors. Do you think that that is somehow lesser than taking the gospel full-time overseas as a missionary to a language that you don't speak? Every missionary that our church supports would beg to differ with that idea. That you're less than them because you haven't been called, supposedly, into some type of full-time Christian service. Your calling is to be the Christian you doing what you do right where you are at. Standing for the truth, sharing the gospel, spreading the light, reaching the people that are around you where God has placed you. That is full-time effective Christian service. That's what it means when he has sent you into the world. What does it mean to be sent? It means to take the gospel to the area where God has placed you. And if every Christian does that, then we accomplish the whole idea of being called and being sent to that, that location, that position. Now, this is not, the idea of being sent into the world is not something just for missionaries, just for full-time pastors, just for people who work in a parachurch organization or supported by Christians full-time, the idea of being sent is not just for them. It is for every Christian. What is your calling? It's described in verse 18. 
As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. It really is that simple. And to think that to think that you're not sent if you're not doing something that is full-time and missionary or a full-time pastor or a paid position on staff with the church, to think that you're not serving God full-time is a, is a violation of even the very principle that we see here. That is a distinction that comes to us from traditions handed down, and it is certainly not biblical. God has sent us into the world to do exactly what he has called us to do. Now, our sanctification... Our sanctification is essential to this, and sanctification is tied to it, which is why he mentions it in verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then he returns to this in verse 19, where Jesus says, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Notice that he's he's repeating again what was in verse 17, the idea of being sanctified. And between the reference to being sanctified in truth and the reference to being sanctified in truth, right in between that sanctified in truth sandwich is the meat of being sent into the world. So this idea of sanctification is intimately and closely and essentially tied to us being sent. As Spurgeon said, an unsanctified minister is an unsent minister. An unsanctified servant is an unsent servant. God wants to send people into the world and leaves you here to be sent into the world. And his goal is that in sending you to the world, he may sanctify you in that process and that he has set you apart for being sent to the world. So remember, sanctification has two meanings. We talked about this last week. The one meaning of sanctification is that we are set apart for special use from that which is common. That's what the idea of being sanctified is. Set apart for special use. Set apart from that which is common. And then the other idea has the moral or the ethical overtones to it of being made holy, being made progressively more holy. Now when Jesus says, I have sanctified, or for their sakes, I have sanctified myself, which which definition of sanctification is he using? He certainly cannot be speaking of being made more and more progressively holy because he had no sin to to be rid of. He had no sin to lose. He had no area where he could grow in holiness or righteousness. He was perfect in all of those respects. So he must mean and must be speaking in terms of being set apart for a special use, a special task. I think in this context, Jesus is describing being set apart in the sense that Old Testament priests were said to be sanctified and Old Testament sacrifices were said to be sanctified. That word sanctification or consecration was used in the Old Testament to speak of priests and to speak of sacrifices. So, for instance, Aaron and his sons were sanctified, set apart, consecrated. They were different than the other 12 tribes. They were set apart for the purpose of being used as priests in the ministry of offering sacrifices. It was also said of certain sacrifices that those sacrifices were consecrated or sanctified or set apart as a special offering unto the Lord. Now, so the word sanctified does not in and of itself mean dedicated or devoted to death, but I would suggest to you that in this context, it is difficult to escape that meaning, that sort of that implication, that Jesus, in describing his own sanctification, he was describing here his being set apart for the Lord as both a priest and as a sacrifice. Let me give you two references from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he is the high priest, the great high priest of the good things that are to come. And he functions as our high priest. But this high priest is not like the priests of the Old Testament, who would offer over and over again sacrifices continually uh, for the sins of the people, this high priest has once for all consecrated, sanctified, 
a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was the sacrifice of himself. He offered his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, which could never cleanse a conscience or take away sin, but he offered his own blood, which has forever cleansed the conscience and taken away the sin of all those for whom that sacrifice was made. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and following. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That gets right to the, right to the issue of for whom did Christ die? By that one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Who are the sanctified ones? Those whom the Father has given to the Son and the Son has set apart as his own. And the author to Hebrews says, by his one sacrifice, he has forever perfected all of those for whom he has made that sacrifice. That is why Jesus, in verse 19, says, it is for their sakes. For whose sakes? For the whole world? For every last person? He's speaking of the eleven. It is for their sakes that I have sanctified myself. And in verse 20, it is also for the sake of those who would believe upon him through the testimony of the disciples. He's not praying anything about the world. He's not saying anything about his relationship to the entire world. In fact, up in verses, what was it, 9 and 10, he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you have given to me. And now he is specifically speaking of these eleven. And he is saying, for their sakes, I have set my part self apart as a sacrifice so that they may be sanctified in truth. Our sanctification in the truth and our being set apart unto the service of God as His people, that has been purchased for us in its entirety because of what Christ has done. So that all that He did in His setting Himself apart as a sacrifice for God was intended for the benefit and for the blessing of His people. That was what was in the mind of Christ when He set Himself apart as a sacrifice. To die on behalf of His people. And He has done so. And He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we are sanctified because he has first sanctified himself. And in this sanctification in verse 19, I think that there is there is an ethical or moral component to it. It speaks of the progressive sanctification that we talked of last week in verse 17. But it also speaks of one being set apart for this purpose of being sent into the world. So this applies to every single Christian. Every single last Christian believer is one who has been sent into the world, is a full-time servant is somebody who has been set apart by the sacrifice of the Son so that you can go into the world and do, as Paul says, be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, to plead with men, to persuade men, and to beg men on behalf of God, be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That's what we've been sent to do. And we've been sent to do that because Christ has set Himself apart to be our sacrifice so that we could be set apart unto God to go out and to serve Him. This whole idea of, of, of being sent by God and being called by God, this offers... This offers a degree of dignity to what we do and what we have been called to do, does it not? If you have been called to serve God, if you've been set apart for Him unto His service so that you could go out and reach the world with the gospel, there's no Christian on the face of the planet who can say, well, I've only been called to a little little area of service. There's nothing that I do that's really significant. No matter how small or insignificant you think what you do, what you do is, what you do is huge because of the one for whom you do it. That is what gives meaning and significance to every detail of your life. 
Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. Whatever you do that is not of faith is sin, but everything that you do that is of faith, generated by a desire to glorify Him and honor Him and serve Him as unto Him, no matter how small or insignificant, even offering a cup of cold water, if it is done for Him, it receives a reward and it has eternal ramifications. It is glorious in its eternal truth and ramification because of who it is done for. So this offers a dignity to our area of service. So what is your job? What is your vocation? Where has God placed you? Housewife? Photographer? Baker? Candlestick maker? What is it? If what you do, you do for the glory of God, and you do all things unto Him, it's eternally significant. It's, it's, it's beautiful, and it is glorious, and it will receive a reward. And, and I can, we can do that with confidence, knowing that we have been called to a high calling because of Him who has called us, and because we serve the One who has called us. And our holiness is essential to us being effective in this service that God has called us to. We have seen the ramifications, and we will see the ramifications until the Lord comes back, of men and women who claim to speak for God, who are public figures, who we find out later on are very unsanctified people. They hit our headlines every once in a while, especially in the wake of the whole Ashley Madison affair. And I use that, that was a pun, intended pun. The whole Ashley Madison affair. Uh, how many people's names were revealed on that list to all of a sudden we find out, wow, these people are not sanctified after all. These people are not living the life that they claim to be living after all. That's why Spurgeon said an unsanctified minister is an unsent minister. God wants holy people representing him. Holy people. Righteous people. People who love him and pursue holiness without which we cannot see God. People who are sanctified by the truth and who know the truth and who love the truth and whose lives are a reflection of the truth. Those are the ones whom God wants to send out into the world. You may be as articulate with the gospel and as good of a preacher as the Apostle Paul and as accurate and theologically astute as the Apostle Paul, but if you live an unsanctified, unholy life, it is an embarrassment, and your life detracts from your message and takes the power out of that. But if the best that you can do is stumble through a gospel presentation as accurate as you can do it, and, and, and your, your, your heart is pure, but you just kind of fumble through it, and you're not really articulate, but you want to testify to the gospel of God's grace, and you're really not that good at communicating the message, but you live a holy life, the unbeliever can't deny a holy life. J.C. Ryle said this, Holy living is the great proof of the reality of Christianity. Men may refuse to see the truth of our arguments, but they cannot evade the evidence of a godly life. Such a life adorns religion and makes it beautiful and sometimes wins those who are not won by the word. You hear that? A godly life adorns religion. It lends power and authenticity to the message that we have been called to give. God wants sanctified and holy people to represent Him in this world. That is why sanctification is so tied to being sent. It is not sufficient for us to simply go out and make sure that we hand out gospel tracts and communicate clearly and have our theology right, but God wants to send out holy, sanctified people who have been sanctified by the truth and who know the truth and who live the truth and whose hearts are right before Him. God sanctifies His servants before He sends His servants. So Christian, God has sent you into this world. Where do you work? What do you do with each and every day? Do it all unto the glory of God, giving glory to Him. Do it as unto the Lord, not as man-pleasers, working hard, being the best Christian you you can be in the situation where God has placed you, pursuing sanctification, living a holy life, sharing the truth. That is what He's called you to. And God has promised that He will bless us for that faithfulness to His task. And God has promised that He will give us strength in accordance with the measure and the commission that He has given to us. We do what we do for His glory. We do what we do for His honor, right where He has placed us. 
That is Christian calling. That is what the Lord has sent us to do. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have sent us into this world. It is an overwhelming task if we were to tackle this in our flesh and to do what you've called us to do in our own strength. But you have promised to provide us the strength and all that is necessary to live godly and righteously in this present generation. We pray that you would equip us to stand for the truth and to love it. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Give us a hatred for sin. Give us a love for righteousness. Give us a desire to pursue you in all things and to model the character and the nature of Christ to a watching world. And give us that confidence, we pray, that everything that you have called us to, you will reward us for, if done faithfully, for your honor and for your glory. And so sanctify us, your people, and send us into the world that we may be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and that we may testify of the gospel of God's grace. And to give us grace, we pray, to do so faithfully. For your honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.